Here, Reuben, come and look, quick. What is it, boy? The light of the sun shining off a big yellow digger. Fellow wearing a wide-brimmed hat and leather jacket. Went over there in the sand, it did. Nothing there now. Not now, maybe. I told you, it went behind the sand dunes. It could have been a... What do they call them? Treasure seeker. Hmm, went far off. Reckon I know what you've seen. They always said the Beast of Joss would be back. The Beast of Joss? Aye. Here comes Ben. Quick, get that door closed. Did you see him, Ben? Who? The Beast of Joss. Tah, there's no such person. They say he haunts relay transmitting stations like this. He might be after those film cans we buried on the beach. Ah, Don't be daft. The last time that beast was seen in Devon, two men were fired that very same night, cleaned out a small film store. Broke their hearts, he did. Didn't just take their Doctor Who, but Basil Brush too, and a whole load of old comedies. Old place burned down shortly after. They ain't got nothing to transmit, no, but a test card and static. Gah, that old tale again. More than a tale. Vince saw him tonight. Sun shining off his JCB, so he said. Don't let him take our Marco Polo, Reuben. Please. Don't worry, boy. Pass me that carpet. We'll hide the film cans underneath it. That'll keep him safe. He'll never look there. pitched another documentary during that documentary uh, uh, with the with the with the whole cookbook thing but yeah yeah, yeah okay well I mean and, and I do want to talk about the cookbook because as I mentioned uh, on the one I did with Chris I mean the, I watched this with my daughter uh, my daughter's in her early teens and we've watched quite a lot of of the original series together so she knew quite a lot of the of the, of the people that were on it but she she really enjoyed it. She really responded to the to the humour and to the to the situation. And of course, she's seen MasterChef, so she got the joke with India Fisher doing the, yeah. the voiceover. But I I, th- I think you know what I liked most of all about it was, and I said this to Chris. You know, you you can you can do a an out and out spoof, and as he said, I think on on the recording, you're not going to get very far with that because. You know, where's 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 the fun in simply sending something up? And and in fact, though there seems to be something very organic about it, it, it they they actually enjoyed the the task you you set them in 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 terms of the cooking, or you and Chris set them in terms of the cooking, and and also in in some of the 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 pairings, the relationship came out in the course of the task. So you kind of got to see a a little bit about the relationship there. So so I I I really really enjoyed that. Um, I guess I wonder again how what it was like for you in that situation i mean there's a, there's a lot going on there's 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 cooking going on yeah. you're trying to do an interview sort of with the person there's there's a recipe you've got to follow i mean i mean what's what's it what was it like trying to do that it was hard and in fact i think we were supposed to do some of the links when we were doing the the lenny main documentary which was filmed a lot of it at my house right uh, and we were we were going to do the cookbook links as well and i think and we'd had a long day and I think Chris sensed that I was a bit knackered and a bit testy, mm. and he said, "We're gonna we're gonna leave the cookbook because we're 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 not, yeah, we're gonna do that. I'm gonna come back." I think he was trying to save a bit of cash by doing doing both at the same time, and we ended up not doing so because I think I was a bit I was a bit knackered, and it's you know when you're full on when you're filming in lights and no fresh air and all of that sort of thing, mm. which which is again shows his great sensitivity. Funny enough, it's you've just reminded me. But I said when you said the word spoof. My first potential involvement was with the range was when somebody came to see my show, Moth Set, my Doctor Who scarf, uh, and asked to meet up and we had a drink. And, and he said, you know, I, I, I'm involved in the DVD range and, you know, have you got any ideas for sort of spoof 
comedy type documentaries and mm. I thought I'd got loads because they'd just done they'd done the the Pyramids of Mars one that was very funny right with yes. the, yeah and I, and I and because I'm a comedian there was a there was a sort of suggestion oh do you want to do some of that stuff and I had a few ideas and I largely I decided it was a pretty thankless task much as I would love to have been involved in the DVD range because it was miles away I didn't know anybody I've never been part of organised fandom I didn't know anybody mm. I think sometimes I think we all live in the same house and drink in the same pub and are all mates I, mm. I, I you know I'm, I'm afraid I got the work on, on, on merit because I didn't know any of the people <laughs> yeah. and I actually ended up going I, d- I don't think I'm going to pitch anything I don't want to do a spoof because the target audience don't really like them unless you unless you're somebody with a with a name I think they they just go who's this guy it would be Adric syndrome why is this guy trying to be funny about Doctor Who well I could be doing that mm. but as a result of that meeting I, 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 you know I, I, I mentioned I emailed and, and, and I said, oh, why is, why is the War Machines only got these two contributors on it? What about all the, these people? And they went, oh, um, they didn't know they were still alive. And I was like, oh, come on, they're in spotlight. I could have put you in touch with them, <laughs> bloody, bloody, blah. And, there, and out of that came a sort of, oh, I mean, would you ever be interested in moderating one? And I went, God, I dream of that. Some people do Oscar speeches. I'd be on my bike going, welcome to the DVD commentary for Doctor Who. So, that, <laughs> so out of that, I got the, the moderating yeah. gig. Which to me was much better because there's no pressure to be funny. You could be a little bit anonymous. You do it best if if people don't sort of notice you're there, sort of sure. thing. So I had been offered sort of comedy stuff, and and actually in the Robophobia documentary, there were a few jokes at the expense of Doctor Who and some of Doctor Who's robots. And I said I don't want to do that. I don't want to be some smart ass comedian taking yeah. the Mickey out of Doctor Who. I've seen loads of crap documentaries on the telly that do that, and I'm <laughs> not interested in that. I love Doctor Who. I'm not going to start. I, I get a bit annoyed when fans sort of. So we go, yeah, isn't it a bit rubbish? And you go, well, what are you doing here then? Do you know what I, mean? um, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm better than Doctor Who. I am, you know, I, I love Doctor Who. I'm in Doctor Who's shadow. I'm, I'm not gonna. Uh, I might amongst my friends if you know, if I'm in a in a shortly mood. But uh, no. So anyway, so then comes along the cookbook. Now years down the line, we suggest the cookbook as a joke in Matthew Waterhouse's kitchen, and Chris goes, I actually think that's a really good idea. And I went all right fine is you know again thinking i'm doing my last documentary chris has come up with another idea and he pitches it and it happens to be honest i thought people would hate it i thought you know i get away with being on the havoc thing because it's getting the old team back together the pizza mm. on human finding out a few things there's always a re- me dicking about with the doctor who cookbook you know I, I, and you could sort of go well you know people might like to see the stars from Doctor mm. Who with the Doctor Who cookbook, that's one thing. But that comedian guy's all already on the blooming commentaries and already on this, that, oh, we're sick of him. I actually thought it might be the time people just down tools and went, right, we've had enough of him. <laughs> Get rid- Burn him. <laughs> and I, I didn't think people would be interested. I thought it was too arcane. Mm. I, I didn't think people would like the, the humour of it particularly. And I kept trying to stick in, like the bit with the the Richard Herndl, you know, the the sort of oh, we've got a bit of historical stuff here. We've got a letter from Richard Herndl. That yeah. was what I thought would be the stuff that people liked. But people like, of course, people like the regulars, and they like watching them at conventions and the banter. And mm. and Chris, you know, he's he's a very smart guy. He he cast it very well. Janet and Sarah are good. And it was actually really nice having it in Sarah's kitchen, yeah, because it was Sarah's turf, and Sarah too often because she's so polite and lovely and nice, yeah. uh, you know, takes a back seat. Well, we're in Sarah's place and yeah. I met her first and then Janet sort of came in and wielded the knife. So I thought that was automatically a slightly different dynamic. Yes, yes and, and also I think, you know, Sarah kind of knows what she's doing in a cooking scenario. I mean... She I, does. You, you know, so again, that gives her a little bit of a, a front foot, I suppose, in that. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed Sarah's company in that one, and I do sometimes think she she, she takes a back seat, and and I I felt I found out a lot more about her and her character. Hmm. And Fraser is good fun, so yes. I knew I'd have a, have a had a laugh with him. I really like Terry Terry Malloy, yes. um, and he entered into the spirit of it. And then you got I mean I've got Doctor Who and Perry in Perry's yeah. house cooking, of course, not the recipe for the book, <laughs> yeah. and had a lovely time. But I I wasn't sure. You know, I thought people might go if you're going to spend the money to get Colin Baker. Get him to tell us about the making of the two doctors. Don't get him to cook a cheesecake. But um, people responded really nicely to it. So I'm delighted, but I was worried. Not because I had a problem with the quality of the programme. I I thought it was, you know, Chris is is a very, very good programme maker and he gets very good cameramen and, uh, you know, shoots it on good stock and makes it look, you know, they look look 
proper. Yes, he's, 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 he saves money on the presenters, and, <laughs> um, and 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 it's been people have loved it. So great, yeah. and it's created another strand, the revisited strand. Yes. So I've got the I've got the living with a companion strand. I've got the looking for somebody yes. we don't know much about strand, and I've got the revisited strand. So having gone from going well, you know, I've done my last. I'm now sort of going. I've got three dangling strands now. Yeah, yeah. To the extent that there was a, a a box set out the other day, and one of the reviews said. There's no Toby Haydock documentary on this one, and I, I'm like, well, no, there's, there's not supposed to. I'm not supposed to be on everyone, but are people now expecting me to be on everyone? And that's quite nice that my I, I even get mentioned in on a, the review of a box set I'm not on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it's the it's the polar opposite of the uh, of the sniffy review for about Levine. Uh, yes. Now I'm saying why hasn't why hasn't he done one? <laughs> yes. Uh, So, Fugitive of the Jadoon by Vinay Patel and Chris Chibnall. So, only three weeks after my complete history of the Time Lords, and we're going to have to revise that. <laughs> uh, so, so, so they're back. We've got a new Doctor, Captain Jack, and a beautiful TARDIS set. Um, uh, who is to kick us off? Well, this this series keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? Suddenly, I I find myself. I don't know how you guys feel. I'm, I'm looking forward to Doctor Who. Every Sunday again. Mm. There's so much. I mean, we've we've called this a mini podcast. There's so much to talk about here. So many ways in which the the story and Thirteenth um, Doctor's arc could spin off now. What a fantastic episode! I thought it looked glorious. The cathedral setting. We saw a new TARDIS interior and an altogether different TARDIS. That was that was fantastic. There's so many mysterious things that could unravel now over the rest of the series. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it, mm-hmm. and it was it was it was superb. Jodie Whittaker's getting better and better each week. Um, she had I thought her dialogue throughout was fantastic. I don't know how many surprises can you pop into an episode. What did what did you think, Giles? Oh, I thought yeah, absolutely. It was um, it's yeah, pleasant surprise because I, I didn't. I must say, coming up to this one, I'd kind of heard. The only thing, that, the only chatter I'd heard was a couple of people saying, "Oh, we're supposed to expect surprises of some mm. sort or other." I think Nicky Wilson had made a tweet to that effect. I was completely spoiler-free. I don't know whether any of this stuff did get out, but yeah, I, I must say I was—I kind of went in thinking, "Oh, yeah, I'm not particularly excited by this episode," and and it really, yeah. really caught me on the hop. And it was a you know, great, just like a you know, wham bam, yeah. You know, first the Captain Jack thing, then the you know, and then you thought, hang on, that's uh, <laughs> that whole thing with breaking the light. That starts to look a bit. Um, I was thinking, shit, has she been fob watched? And um, <laughs> pardon my language. And lo and behold, and then I thought, okay, who is she? And then yeah, so it was a really good, kept the surprises coming, and yeah, well, brilliant and completely yeah up the stakes on what I've really been kind of expecting from you know what we've come to come to get used to with Chibnall's era as we've had it so far mm. it was great you actually had to watch all the way to the end of the story mm. you know they kept the who is the who is the fugitive going all the way through sustain mm. uh, that's mm. people have had a dig at Chibbers and his writing but mm. Chibbers and Vinay they, they played a blinder this week I thought mm. that mm. the scripting was excellent and I was absolutely glued to the screen. It was superb. Mm. So yeah, so so I mean, as as Giles was suggesting, when I when I started to watch it, I mean, it looks like a a sort of RTD esque, slightly comedy episode set set in Gloucester. Mm. I mean, nothing wrong with RTD's episodes. Uh, when we talked about Smith and Jones, we all kind of liked that one, as I recall. You, you, you know, you've you've got nice early stuff with the tourists and and, and Ruth kind of trying to capture it. Nice cuts there. Mm. Um, the Jadoon arrive, and there's a typical kind of mayhem, and there's there's comedy deaths, there's callous deaths. But you know, I mean, it, it it's all very much of a of a piece with what you might expect with the Jadoon involved. And then you know, suddenly great twists and 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 better, I think, than than the Master in Spyfall. And we thought that was pretty impressive to keep that under wraps. To me, suddenly, this feels like a different show. I mean, where was this in in uh, series eleven? Mm. What, what 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 happened last year? It, it, it's it's almost unrecognisable. Mm. Um, so so in one way, you know, you could say a fairly slight episode. I mean, that the, you couldn't say that the I suppose the envelope of the plot was particularly astonishing. I mean, you know, fundamentally, start off in in Gloucester. They there's a trip to the lighthouse. 
they they go up to the Judean ship in the TARDIS and then back down again. It's, but but the you know fifty six years of history and a series of, of surprises gives it incredible weight and you know a bold and and, and fresh approach and and you know daring I guess to challenge some of the things that we've held as as facts for a very long time. Mm. Okay. So I think moving on to producer. So so I'll I'll kick us off on this All one, right. and then you can you can come in behind me. So I guess for for very similar reasons to you picking David Whitaker, I've gone for Verity Lambert for my producer because I feel like she she picked up the program from a, you know a piece of paper and turned it into reality. Mm-hmm. And by the time she left the program, its future was essentially assured. I mean, you know, don't, don't get me wrong; there were wrinkles along the way, and there was a pretty, pretty big hurdle to overcome. Both, I guess, at the end of the of the Hartnell and, and Troughton years, but nonetheless, it, it had gone from being, "Look, here's a thing that might be fun to make," to here's a staple of the, you know, a fixture, I suppose, of, of the of the schedules. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had been already already been running for. For a couple of years, and it was it was sort of you know guaranteed to run for a third year, and I think also, what you know what might be interesting you know based on your potential discussion is, okay, I mean the Verity from the sixties was a force already, but but Verity maybe you know by the the eighties or nineties having gained so much more experience in television production, we might have seen at that stage maybe you know another side to her. That would have been fat, yeah, because that was like her first job as producer was basically doing Doctor Who. There's it, there's such a like a revolution in the way that Doctor that first series is made. Like you know, it's thrown away, it's thrown away. Give just give it to this twenty seven year old woman. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we'll let this this young Indian director have the first episode. Whatever, it's just out of the way. It's yeah. a thing. It's there to fill the gap in the schedules. Go nuts, and then you know five weeks later the Daleks appear and everything changes. Yeah, uh, and so I, I love I love how she transitions from that scrappy go getter of a series to all of a sudden series two it becomes like let's try comedy, let's try a massive madcap Dalek chase, let's go to an alien planet where literally no one is dre- is a human being. We have the, yeah. we don't have the money for it, but we're gonna go for it anyway. <laughs> like it goes, yeah. it just the the boundless imagination of those first two seasons. I think are are a credit to her role as producer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and it, I mean, I guess there have been there have been female producers in in the new series, but but really the only time that the series has ever been overseen by a woman. Yeah, in its run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, women have a rem- like you know uh, what's her name at the uh, Joanna Spicer at the BBC was very responsible for getting the series greenlit in the first place you have Dee Lee Derbyshire mm. of course making the yeah. music you have uh, Verity Lambert I mean you know then you have like Julie Gardner and Jane Tranter in the modern series yeah. bringing it back women sadly don't feature as prominently in Doctor Who history as they should but they're there at the crucial moments to make the yeah. show happen absolutely Stephen who's your pick well I mean I-, I could make a case for pretty much every single producer <laughs> in this list yep I'm fascinated by the John Wiles era. Uh, it yeah. didn't last long. He hated being there, but I thought he pushed Doctor Who in these weird, uncomfortable directions that I think it's uh, important yeah. for a show at that time of its lifespan to to go on. You know, Innis Lloyd, I think, helped sort of create the what we know now as Doctor Who. You know, the, the Troughton yeah. era, I think, is sort of the first modern, if you will, instance of, of, uh, of how the show is going to be made for the next... 50 years mm-hmm. Derek Sherwood Peter Bryant they you know unit that helped establish a format that uh, that was very popular Barry Letts made the show primetime viewing uh, and and like you know 8 10 11 million viewers which it never really had in, in like a, a constant run as, as he did in his time then of course it's Philip mm-hmm. Hitchcliffe but I am choosing because based on you know potential uh, and 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 perhaps getting the, the short straw. I'm choosing Graham Williams. I, I'm going through yet another reappraisal of the Graham Williams era as of late. It's, uh-huh. it's, it, it is slightly nostalgia-tinged. I grew up in that era. I stopped watching the show for a couple of years because I didn't have the means to watch it, and then when I came back into it, it was happened to just be Graham Williams coming around again, so that's my happy spot. But 
there is just a sense of fun to the show and fantasy and uh you know moving away from the horror movie tropes of the Hinchcliffe Holmes era to like more of a fantastical based yeah. in sort of classic classic literature elements as well but also with some you know perhaps driven by the script editors of the day like you know image of the fendel and horror of fang rock are very much holdovers from the previous year yeah there's a, some great ambition in that in those three seasons that are completely undone by the economic situation of the time. Uh, they'd basically <laughs> run out of money before they had it even spent, you know, by the time, well, we budgeted for this, but four months later, by the way, your budget's gone. So I, I would have loved to have Graham Williams have a proper budget and, uh, and less strife. And uh, he was half the team responsible for City of Death. Uh, Douglas Adams wrote yeah. it, but Greg Williams locked the door and poured the coffee, and uh, you know <laughs> he had his part to yeah. play as well. And he didn't get the sign off that he deserved in, in Shada because it, uh, of course, it was yeah. canceled by a strike. So I always thought that Graham Williams uh, deserved another kick at the cat. Yeah, yeah, we've just been watching uh, Androids of Tara for for this podcast, and it was a lot of fun actually. Oh. Yeah, and, mm. and so so I mean I won't say too much more, but but yeah, it, I think we all very much enjoyed watching it, and it and it. it it, it possibly will help me to to um, reappraise his era. Uh, I, yeah, I, I hope. I know you said you're a little hazy on on the Graham Williams era. It's just so, it's it's just lovely. I, I love the Edge of Zatara so much. It's basically Doctor Who's version of the Princess Bride. I think there's just a swashbuckling going on. Only one character dies in the entire thing, and it's Madame Lamia, yeah. and she basically gets hit by you know, um, by a random laser bolt which are amazing in and of itself i think the visual effects in graham williams era are amazing some mm. of the model work is the best ever in the history yeah. of the show like the pirate planet has a wonderful explosion at the end and then hordes of Nymon mm. even has some excellent uh model work and everything and and you know to go back to the uh the lack of female characters in robert holmes's stuff i there the graham williams era is a wash with strong female characters yeah especially Stones of Blood and Creature from the Pit even features a strong performance from Maya Francis. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's become a very happy place for me during this pandemic, but just overall, the Graham Williams era. Fantastic. Come on, Sam. Don't give me the numbers this time. I know you think it increased the tension. <laughs> oh, no. It's just, give me the production code. I'll give you these, Paul. I'll give you these. But Richard Isn't has the... to go first on the classic Who story. Okay. Mm -hmm. He but, what? Or you take over when 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 Richard. Oh, all right. Yeah, we'll do that. All right. So I'm going to give you the numbers. Yeah. The first one is story one 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 Meglox, <laughs> and then it's two o one Midnight. Uh, Richard first on Megloss, please, and then over to Paul for Megloss and Midnight. Okay. Paul, that would give us a bit of thinking time. I, <laughs> um, I remember very clearly watching all four episodes <laughs> of, 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 of The Leisure Hive. I also very clearly remember watching all four episodes of Full Circle. For some unaccountable reason, I have absolutely no memory whatsoever of anything happening in between those two and I can only conclude that I must have randomly failed to watch Megloss for some reason um, so all I can tell you is that it's got an alien in it that looks like a cactus and at some point turns into Tom Baker because there's a waxwork of him um, and then also it was directed by Terence Dudley um, and the only reason I know that is because um, Hugh Turberville mentioned it uh, on something here a few episodes back. Um, so there you go. Paul, you can tell us about it properly now. Uh, no, I can't. <clears throat> if I could remember, I researched it. We did a we did a very in depth podcast on the whole of season eighteen, and um, the strangest thing is that all three participants that was Tim, myself, and um, and uh, yeah, and Matthew. It's right. I was pretending I couldn't remember his name. That's very cruel. <laughs> hey, hi, Matt. He's not watching. We all. One. The oddest thing was that we all came to the conclusion that Megalos was not the weakest or worst, or or generally our least favourite story of the season, which we all went into it assuming it would be. Um, I went into it assuming it would be because I hadn't seen it since 
until last year. I haven't seen it since the time. Um, I <laughs> it's it's famously a story that is, it's a hangover. It was written not for season 17, but the writers had season 17 in their heads and they were writing Douglas Adams style, Graham Williams style, comedy who, hence the ridiculousness of the premise. And then incoming script editor, uh, Christopher Holy Bidmead took out most of the jokes. And it was, so early was he in his, um, in his script editorship that he hadn't realized you needed to replace them with something. So most of the episodes are about 19 minutes long, I think. Uh, I am exaggerating, so don't correct me. So it's a very strange experience. There are <laughs> there are still some jokes in it, but he's cut out all the Doctor's funny lines, which right. is an odd experience. You've got the very serious season 18 Doctor mm. that we've just been introduced to. It's the very grave, for no particular reason, Doctor of season 18, because he hasn't even spotted the oncoming heat death of the universe yet, but s somehow he's lost his joy de vie. And yet he's he's walking through not wisecracking in the middle of all this ridiculousness and turning into a cactus and um, Freddie Treves overacting. So that's that really is peculiar and also has a story. Um, don't like religious maniacs. The elements just don't fit together. Space pirates in with flamboyant shoulder pads, cacti. Barbara Wright pretending to be a religious... <laughs> alien zealots i mean it's just it just doesn't cohere and yet somehow it's not my least favorite thing to watch out of season 18 that was far too long midnight ah well now now we're talking um yeah i mean i've always thought that that uh, stories that don't have a companion in offer a great opportunity to concentrate on the the plotting and really get into the nuts and bolts and the meat of what doctor's good at without all this uh, Namby Pamby emotions and stuff. I've always thought that, and I've I've told my theory to some of my good friends. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know. If, I don't know if it's lodged with any of them. <laughs> but um, yes, uh, it's Russell. After writing a lot of the big episodes in the first couple of years of New Who, the ones, the tempo ones, the ones that needed to set the tone, relaxed a bit later on, didn't he, and started. Give himself the freedom to to write stuff outside his comfort zone. You could say he's also seeing if he could do a Moffat with this one, which um, I guess is a bit unfair. It's not just a stylistic exercise because it it conspicuously doesn't do what Moffat would have done because it it doesn't explain anything. But it is an exercise in atmosphere and. And uh, lacking, I guess, the sense of that people's innate humanity will save the day that is common to most of Russell's work. Mm -hmm. Not, It's absent here. So, yes, pretty strong meat. Is there a link between the two? Yes, they begin uh, with the letter M. Oh. <laughs> Oh, it's gone quiet. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not Who's sure. turned into a pumpkin? Well, it's all very well for Flanagan and Alan, or whatever they're called, to, <laughs> to tell their story where they're sat there and they just can't think what a villain would look like. And, oh, there's a cactus on the table. Let's make it a cactus in a plant pot. Mm. Yeah, it could have been a bowl of potpourri. Mm. We, we should thank ourselves that. And they're proud of this story as if it's some brilliant conceit. I'm not there to swear, am I? <laughs> well, uh, well, we'll take it as read that you just have done. It's a plant pot with a cactus in it. Flanagan and Alan. <laughs> there aren't even any songs in it. It's not up to their usual. They just weren't, unless Bidney <laughs> cut all those out as well. Yeah. I bet he did, didn't he? When you get in amongst it, apart from the wigs and the cactus, and Jackie Lane, uh, not Jackie Lane, sorry, uh, Jackie Hill, whose performance is a bit odd, and the old, what, what's the, um, what's her mate called? The I old wise guy who was ex who knew the Doctor. 
Oh, I hate stories with people who know the Doctor. Mm. That only comes in JNT. He's rubbish as well. But apart from all of that, in terms of plotting and pace and uh, and comedy bits, it's fine. Yeah. It, it stands out in season 18, as does the State of Decay, in that it's a, an older story, isn't it? It's an older style story, an older style yeah. of water. Tim, is it, tr- is it true that you have very clear memories of this, not so much the story itself, but of Tom Baker as a character, despite the fact you were only three months old when it was broadcast. Yeah. And have you ever thought, wondered what, how that can be? No, I haven't, Paul. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we discussed on Monday night, listeners, that um, my first clear memory of Doctor Who is Edric flailing around in the, I can't remember what it's called, but the, the machine and kinder. Um, and then various firm memories from then on. But I also was very confused when I flipped open a Peter Haining book in the 80s and saw Tom Baker as Megloss, and I had full recognition of it. I was really hoping it was going to be that you'd gone to Madame Tussauds or, or wherever it was. Maybe somebody suggested it was Blackpool. I think somebody would have to have been Richard. He's the only no, other person here. I think it was Tim. Oh, right. I was really hoping it was because you'd seen the waxwork uh, at a mm. formative age, but you don't think you did. I don't Not think I was sores by that point, but I may well have been to the Blackpool exhibition. So if Megloss was at the Blackpool exhibition, that might be a an explanation for it. Or I remember it as a... Well, I was born in, in May 79, and the first story after I was born was Destiny of the Daleks. Ah. Yeah. Now you're talking. So I must have been one year old or one and a bit and I'd find it highly unlikely I would have been awake at that point and being able to recall things on the brightly coloured machine in the corner of the room. But mm. then again, I am quite special, so... Maybe sort of Wookiee Hole. I gather a lot of the old uh, unneeded, redundant waxworks from Madame Tussauds <laughs> end up in storage at Wookiee Hole, something to do with the, uh, the cooled caves. There's mm. a Davros down there as well. It's all true. We established at the start, um, Tim, how special you are. Um, although, of course, Paul is every bit as special. Um, uh, that that part may have been lost in the whole kind of technical fault debacle, but we'll see. We'll see whether that survived for posterity. But just in case, I'll, I'll, I'll make the point again. So you also wrote that book, Doctor Who, The Early Years, and, and I think... That was also uh, um, where you brought together some of the personal collections of um, Ray Kuzik and Barry Newbury to, to illustrate it. Just just Ray. Unfortunately, wasn't able to get okay. Barry was on the, on the list, but it was purely Ray. Okay, sure. And I mean, I guess that was a way for you to to recreate the you know that that excitement you'd had for as an as a boy watching those early shows. It well, yes, that was that was a very big part of it because Ray was one of those people that had a phenomenal uh, photographic collection because he'd happened to buy himself a very nice camera right. just the time you start to work on Doctor Who so he had all this wonderful colour stuff, all these wonderful black and whites he kept all his technical drawings, construction drawings, conceptual artwork, everything and you thought, well, oh god you know, this this is this, this story cries out to be told because Everyone always says, oh, Daleks were created by Terry Nation. Well, yes, he wrote the words, and he does deserve the the plaudits for that. Mm. But he didn't create the design. He he wasn't the one that designed the Concorde, designed the mini mini car. He was the guy that designed the Dalek, which is every bit as iconic a design. And there was sort of a wish to see justice served for, for Ray's contribution to the Doctor Who, which it, which was vast. And because I'd been working quite closely with the author Peter Haining, right. and three or four big coffee table Doctor Who books from you know Celebration onwards, yeah. and Peter's the one that said, well, yeah, basically kicked me up the backside and said, well, go and write your own bloody book. <laughs> just worry about just, you know, looking after me with, with my books, go and do one of your own. And that was supposed was at the time of, of discovering Ray's collection. So 
Peter was away. Was my mentor. Taught, taught me how to write and you know, not to assume knowledge, and gave me an insight into how the publishing industry worked, the book industry worked, and uh, bless his heart, made a, made a couple of introductions to uh, W. H. Allen, uh-huh. uh, which of course had the advantage of a chap called Nigel Robinson being involved with the target range, and he was obviously part of W. H. Allen, so. That gave the opportunity to, to come forward with with what you might what these days would be called the pitch document yeah. to say this is what you're proposing to do, um, mm. because celebration Doctor Who celebration by Peter Haney had been so successful. Yeah, they thought well a book that's even more lavishly illustrated, which has got even more content, and it's about Daleks, mm. provided we can get the the dreaded Roger Hancock to agree the Terry Nation component. Yes, well, let's go ahead and do it, and that's yeah, that's the bit that they did, uh, which then freed me up just to spend all the time that I was doing with 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 Ray going through everything and trying to build up what was going to become um, a book about the early years. Everybody said thinks that oh, I was going to follow it with the intermediate years. <laughs> I say no, no, this this definitely was the attempt to try and uh, redress the balance in a little bit more in favour of, of Ray's contribution yeah. and. I was surprised to this to this day that it, that it I think it achieved that it was certainly um, it did seem to be well received there was there were some things that happened that gave it something extra than was ever planned when Christopher Barry showed me those original yeah. telly snaps the first time I'd ever seen a, a, a telly snap in my life and I thought gosh uh, the first Troughton episode of the regeneration yeah. like you've got to put that in there so Yes, that was very uh, serendipitous. That uh, that was that was there at uh, the time the book was being being compiled. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean that, that's a, a big memory for me. That was was seeing those those photos at the back of the book, and and uh, yeah, very exciting to to get a glimpse into uh, into that part of the story. Yeah, just because it was a behind the scenes piece, and that it's uh, always struck me down the years how much of a thirst Doctor Who fans have not to know not just to know the in front of the camera stories but also the stories behind the stories so that was mm. one of the big attempts to do that mm. so until chris produced those tally snaps was anyone aware that that tally snaps even existed as a, as a thing memory suggests that, that there was some rumblings i think right other directors had shown frames and things from them uh-huh. but this i think was the first time a that they uh, surfaced from a story that didn't exist and B, they were for all six episodes, right? Um, which, which was quite huge. And I think um, Gary Lever, Doctor Bulletin, that he managed to interview a few people who had copies of some telly snaps as well. Hmm. It was only really when um, I think it was Marcus Hearn that went along to uh, the BBC's uh, research facility at Caversham, who discovered whole volumes of it and then brought them, you know, to light and yeah. You know, uh, suddenly, Marvel was being asked to, or not Marvel, it'd been Panini about then, being asked to put their think, their hands in their pockets to to pay to have a whole load of these brought in, so they could be made available to the to the wider world. So mm. those stories that don't exist, yes, they're they're probably the nearest you'll get to uh, giving you a visual flavour. Yeah, of those stories, particularly for ones where uh, photographs are a bit thinner on the ground. Mm. Sure. And uh, so, I mean, I'm going way out of order here, but you, you mentioned Doctor Who, a celebration. So was, was your contribution to that, the, all the stuff around the episode guide and so on, or was it, was it wider than that? The bit that was, was, was laughingly called the Hooniverse, yes, right. entirely, entirely mine. But yeah. again, what Peter was one of those people that uh, came round and went up sitting, sat round uh, my, my parents' dining room, Surrounded by all the photographs, collections, documents, and things that I'd amassed that time, um, while Peter was going through bouncing ideas off and saying, "Well, what do you think to this? What do you think to that?" Hmm. and um, asking me, you know, asking me to be in a way to be the, the proof checker for for the for the technical integrity of the of what he was getting sourced, hmm. um, because as as we kind of find out, some people in some people's cases the memories do cheat and. Yeah. Ford famously always insists that Doctor Who went out live, whereas what you know what she's actually remembering is the show being done as live, but it was still recorded. So you yeah. had to to bounce between uh, somebody being interviewed who's a, asserting one thing, 
whereas you know from the, the paperwork or, or even counter arguments that it was possibly done a different way and using that as a means of building up a, a picture as to how you know, a production was done. So yes, Peter pretty latched on to, oh, here we've got a Doctor Who expert can help me hopefully you know, compile a book that uh, will be read by people and, and not laughed out of court for just being a, a, a complete you know, supercilious overview of the programme when we've got an opportunity here to do something a little bit more in-depth, which is what ultimately Celebration uh, did attempt to do. Hmm. Sure. And I think also my, my memory then of, of the early years is, uh, as you were describing earlier, all of those fantastic photos and drawings of the different sets. Um, again, it, it, it's a sort of material that, that, that I'd never seen before. And, and I suppose also helping to bring those stories to life. I mean, I think as far as the Daleks was concerned, the only one I'd seen was episode two, which, which was shown in the National Film Theatre or somewhere like that. I'd, I'd managed to, I think, I think it was an offshoot in Bradford. I managed to get to see that once in the eighties, but you know, this was, this was still before I'd ever seen the story on video. So those, those kinds of photos and, and set designs really brought it to life for me. Simon, do you want to do your strand next? Yeah, I'll just explain. I, because I enjoyed the crusade so much, Giles, I thought I'd do a bit of research on all the historicals and what, what, what truly makes historical Doctor Who classic story. And I started to find the lines a bit blurred. So what I was going to do is just pick some at random mm. and then you and Richard have to decide whether it's a historical or not. Oh, okay, nice. So... So off we go. Um, the gun. How about the gunfighters? Oh well, I mean, uh, that, that seems to me that seems pretty straightforwardly historical. I mean, there's 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 no kind of weird alien tech going on. They sort of land in the middle of a of a historical event. Uh, so far as we can, yes, yeah. No, it's the thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the moment you actually threw me the question, I was going to say, well, this will be easy because basically, if it doesn't have anything, and but now I'm thinking, okay, well. The gunfighters is so, so much set in Western fiction rather than well, there is, yes, yes, I suppose there is <laughs> rather that. than it, rather than <laughs> anything that approximates the real old West. But, but yes, it's a historical in terms of we're not going to have any um, yeah, no mucking around with the space time continuum. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's as realistic as as the uh, you know Crusade is. In you know, uh, it seems to be set I in a Shakespeare it, play. Yes, I suppose it is, except yeah, in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. I love I love it just to, just for the avoidance of doubt I love the gunfights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm... despite despite all that awful singing, because of all that <laughs> awful singing, you like all that. <laughs> Perhaps that was the sort of Christmas special almost of its day. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. all that I... wasn't shown then. I I always try and love the singing. And and I I always make a brave attempt, and then somewhere around about the middle of episode three, it breaks me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. How about the Time Warrior? That lovely medieval setting. Yeah. And Iron. I think it's Iron. Is it Iron Gron and his Merry Men? Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, so so this one, that's that's, that's an interesting question. So 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 there's there's two. There's two questions about that one. I mean, first off, you've you've got a healthy amount of present day at the start before they go back, and then of course when they go back, there's a Sontaran in it. I mean, I, personally, for me, I don't disqualify it simply because it's got a bit of alien in the historical setting. Hmm. I think, on the whole, the, um, the you know the 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 bit in the historical setting is played sort of relatively straight yeah I, it's i mean it's not it's it's not a historical in the in the sense that the hartnells and and, and the one Troughton was but they make a fair stab at, at the historical setting what do you think charles um i'm i'm just trying to think this through because i've you know i'm just thinking about what we're you know how are we defining historical and I, I think maybe there's something to be said for the for the idea that rather than just our our sort of classically derived definition that it's you know like if it hasn't got aliens in it, yeah, it's a, you know it's a pure historical. I'm thinking, okay, is it is it more to do with whether there's a pivotal moments of history and things like that in it? And it does rather use the history as a backdrop rather than um, 
Well, although it, it although it handles it nicely, the history isn't essential to the story. I don't think so. Hmm. It's it, it's it's only it's only sense story insofar as they're they're useless to the Sontaran, so he has to to reach forward into the future oh, in order to, to sort yes, it out. Right. Yes. But but you're right. I mm. mean, aside from that, it could have been any time. It just happens mm. to be the Middle Ages. But that does add a whole other level of science fiction to it. Of course, the, mm. the time, time snatching, and so mm. on. So, hmm. No, I think it's got too. I think it's got too much. Yeah. Too much sci-fi for me to count it as a historical, personally. Okay. What about the Black Orchid? I've always thought of Black Orchid as being a, a, a straightforward historical. There, you know, they, they, there's, there's the funny bit where they where they sort of show them the TARDIS as if that's going to solve everything, but but you know that aside, it's a con- that is... country house <laughs> historical, isn't it? God, yes, that is the weirdest. Yeah, that you you just put your finger on something there, which that has to be the the weirdest and most gratuitous bit of oh, let's let's show everyone the TARDIS. There's absolutely no reason for that whatsoever in that story, is there? Mm. And it's um. It's just like you know, we're not being faced with an extraterrestrial threat. We've not, yeah. Oh, by the way, yes. Did I mention that we're um, space-time flappers? <laughs> <laughs> flappers, I said. <laughs> yeah, no, that is really odd. And again, thinking of my the definition I'm possibly groping towards, I think it's a period piece, but it's not. Again, historical is a. An interesting question because it's not it doesn't the historical aspect of it really doesn't come into it as such hmm i think you, i think the kids try, would think they're one they're ones with no they're the ones with no monsters yeah and then a more sort of well that's technical the thing, look at it is they're hmm. they're purely historical they're, there's hmm. there's no science fiction elements other yeah. than this chap turning or lady turning up in a blue box hmm. who's a time traveler yeah hmm. That's the thing, I'm desperately trying to sort of grope my way towards whether there's a... to avoid just going, yes, no, yes, no, and just go down and tick pulse on one of those kind of criteria. But... I'm trying to bend the rules a little mm. bit, because my, my, uh, my, you know, having looked at the Crusade again, that's reminded, that's made me fall in love with Hartnell stories again, mm. almost. And mm. my, one of my favourite stories with a sort of historical slant is The Time Meddler. Mm. Yes, yeah. And that's Again, that's a wonderful historical historic setting and a and a key pivotal moment in history, mm. and it's got the wonderful character, the meddling monk, in it mm. as well. Mm. It was one of my favourites. So I was just I was just thinking, you know, how how blurred are the lines between yes. something that's purely historical, like mm. the Aztecs, and then you've got something like I don't know, you've got the King's Demons that has a little bit mm. of somebody mm. from the future inter or someone a time traveller interfering yeah. with the story again. So, so I mean, the time meddler is 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 fantastic because you're so you're so sold on the historical setting that it's a real kind of lurch to suddenly realise. I mean, obviously not for for probably for the three of us because we're already spoiled by the fact that it's got the meddling monk in it. But mm. if you take yourself back to the original viewing, for the first however long, it just feels like mm. a, a, an ordinary historical, and suddenly you realise that there's uh, anachronisms going on. And then mm. eventually you get the the, the 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 sight of a TARDIS, and you suddenly think, "Oh my goodness!" Mm. Uh, the, uh, now the story's turned on its head. So yeah, yes. Isn't the gramophone reveal the first? Yes, I think isn't, that's is, it. Is, isn't the isn't the skipping gramophone the first first hint <laughs> we get that something's wrong with the the monks mm. chanting is actually the the gramophone? Because it's lovely. I you know, it's such a shame that there were some things like that that you can't um. That you can't go back and experience completely fresh, mm. as someone would have seen that in you know, as your average you know, fanatical Doctor Who viewer would have would have experienced it in 1965. So you wouldn't be expecting that, would you? You'd be, mm. you think, okay, now here's Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with some with some Vikings and some Normans mm. and some Saxons, rather, and then yeah, and then they go and throw that one at you. So if you could pick, if you could both pick one of each, one purely historical, with no science fiction in it, 
other than the, the Doctor's arrival. And then a story, I, I call it a sort of time-bending story, like the Time Warrior. Which, mm. which two would you each pick? Well, I'll tell you a, a, a story that I saw... Well, I saw it. I, I, I saw the reconstruction of not all that long ago that I really loved was the Highlanders. I mean, I, I have to say I knew almost nothing about the Highlanders one way or another. I, I'd, I don't think I'd ever listened to the soundtrack of it. I'd not read the Target novelization. It came out too late for me. Mm. And so I didn't really know what it was about, to be honest. I mean, I'd seen the odd synopsis here or there. So... Yeah, I mean, I I came on that relatively unspoiled, and and there's there's some fantastic stuff in that in that story. Polly in particular is fantastic. She oh, she, she leads is, everyone yes. an, an absolute merry dance in it. Mm. Poor old Adam Finch. <laughs> yeah, and the, I mean the Doctor he is everything that's coming to him. But yeah, <laughs> indeed, the Doctor is crazy. I mean, he's absolutely crazy. But mm. but I mean, he's he's almost like a sideshow in it at times. To, you know, to, he's, he's not really driving the plot so mm. much. Uh, I mean, there are there are parts when he does, and and Jamie's such an incidental character. Really, you sort of feel because of his, uh, for, you know, for, because he becomes such an important character that his his opening story must he must be an important figure. But actually, um, you know, he's neither here nor there. And the reason that they ask him to join, I guess, is more because they like Fraser than they because they thought that the character of Jamie was was fantastic. Mm. But um, but yeah, no, it's I mean it, it's uh, I, I would certainly recommend to anyone if you can find the um, uh, the loose canon version of of, uh, of the Highlanders on on a, on the internet somewhere. You don't honestly have to look all that hard to find it. <laughs> then it's it's definitely definitely well worth a look. Mm, thank you. It's got very dark undercurrent. It's got very dark undercurrent to it as well, isn't it? The Highlanders. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the whole Highland clearances and so on, and 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 the nastiness of the of the English soldiers. Yeah, yeah, it mm. does. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I go, yeah, because that's that comes from the very the tail end of the, the yeah, original run of historicals, where I think you could say you know, they they get more they get they get more playful than some. I don't know. I guess I guess they're always doing different things, but that's obviously towards towards the very end. You've got things where they're they're more riffing on what sort of classic literatures take on yeah. certain things. So it's a so this is really out of, you know out of the in the vein of kidnaps and you know and those Robert Louis Stevenson adventure stories and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the smugglers is obviously you know, you know the bastard child of Moonfleet. And, yeah. Um, Treasure Island. Yeah. And then, but I, yeah, I mean, for for me, I personally, I, I can't get past. I think I think it has to be the Aztecs. Is um. Uh huh. Yeah. Very good. Is you know, is just, it's a superlative, episode you know story in, in so many ways. And interestingly enough, it's again, it does quite raise this question of where do you draw the line and how do you, how do you find a pure historical? Because although it's a Although it's a pure historical in terms of that there are no other science fiction trappings of of all of them, it's the one where the the science fiction concept of can you you know can you alter history? Mm. What does it you know of of all of the historicals that I can that I can bring to mind? It's the one where that is put front and centre. Mm. So in some ways, it's a you know it's a sci-fi story, and that it's debating it's debating that question of what what are the the ethics and the implications within the Doctor Who universe of of trying to do, of if Barbara tries to do that, mm. and I don't think there's anything that really touches on it quite so much. Although, um, yeah, although obviously the um, the Crusade briefly touches on it at the end. Um, Vicky yes ponders on whether they could whether they could sort of help Richard by you know change things by um, by sort of telling Richard. That he's not going to, he's not going to get to Jerusalem, but yes, and again, that's very much at the, you know, the Aztecs is very much at the Cold Shakespearean end of the hmm. historical scale, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those perfect, you know, perfect storms of everything coming together and making something really outstanding, just as a piece of television, as well hmm. as a piece of Doctor Who. I think. Sure. So, Simon, you got a favourite? Mm, yes, Very good. I the Highlanders is high on my list as well, but I I love the Smugglers. Oh yeah, another ah. story, <laughs> another story. Sadly, there's there's very little remaining of it. But mm. I've got a big 
soft spot for Cornwall because I'm a huge Poldark fan. <laughs> so I love I love the setting. Um, from what we can see and hear of it, I think the acting is top notch in it as well. Mm. Yeah. And it's just a nice, it's just a lovely historical romp. Um, it's a strong Ben and Polly story, and mm. there's not enough of those really for me. No, they're absolutely. Two of my favourite characters mm-hmm. and companions, and they're much overlooked. So that's a that's a really strong one for me. And then the time, all the of all the time bending ones, there's all there's all sorts that springs. That I mean, there's pyramids of Mars. Yes. The Time Warrior, the mm. Mask of Mandragora, I think's my favourite. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, for, for, for the time-bending ones. For that, I, I was going to say Evil of the Daleks. I quite like the Victorian setting in that, and and uh, the you know the, the the juxtaposition of the Daleks against the country mm. house. I think is quite interesting. You know, uh, uh, what, yeah. what uh, do not feed the the flying pests. Whatever <laughs> it is. <laughs> yes, um, I suppose we were. Doing... Yes, they tend to crap all over your car. Don't they? <laughs> mm, yes. Yeah, Dalek bodywork is a hell to clean. Yeah. All those bumps. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I suppose if I was if we were picking the the ones with more sci-fi to them, I would um, having name checked it already. I'd have to. I think I'd probably probably say Vincent the Doctor. I'd go new oh, series yes. really. Um, Good choice. Yep. And again, it's one of those marvelous things where it does something different with the format. Mm. It's almost. It's in some ways, it's almost is a pure historical. And okay, we're, I guess we're meant to take the monster at face value as, as being a real monster, but yes, and it does it does that marvelous sappy, very Richard Curtis mm. moment of you know where it's one of those things that only a non Doctor Who writer would come in and say, well, why can't I just take him to the future and show him, yeah, you know, what his legacy is going to be? Because mm. anyone more versed in the um, the series lore would say, well, no, you can't, you can't rewrite history, not one line. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, that would be my choice. Hmm. Uh, although he kind of has his cake and eats it too, doesn't he? Because oh, because, yes. he, because he still doesn't change the, the history. But no, but, it, no. but I, I mean, I, th- I think it's I think it works in both ways. I think it it hmm. it, 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 it has the marvelous moment where he realizes that he has had uh, an impact, and yet it also that it's, that's not going to change the ultimate. Uh, hmm. Impact because in the end, of course, it's not really about his self-esteem, is it? It's a, it's 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 an illness that he's got. Mm, yes. Yeah. Good. Well, I mean, th- Simon, thanks so, thanks for that. It's food for thought. You, sorry, did you have anything else you wanted to say to us? No, no, all, all solid choices. I, I I came up with a great big list. There's you know, Talons of Wing Chiang. That's a oh yes, that's a historical setting. If, if, you, if, get, you get if Paul were with us, he probably would have pulled that one out. <laughs> <laughs> But no, that was a that was a lot of fun, mm. and that's that was all kickstarted, of course, by watching the crusade. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What I'm really keen to talk to you about before we come to to uh, finish is um, is Showman. I mean, I oh, I yeah. read uh, Richard Marson's biography of JNT when it came out, and I thought I'd I'd read the definitive account of his life. Um, I mean, certainly, you know. 400 odd pages i mean it, 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 there was a lot in there and and, and it's it's a, it's a fantastic book but i mean i was interested to 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 watch your documentary and and you know you come up with quite a few new angles on on jnt that weren't in the book yeah and possibly also the the balance is such such that we come away with a with a, a slightly more uh, sympathetic view of john i mean i mean you know certainly you've, you've not shied away from the fact that he had some flaws in it, uh, and and some you know some things didn't go too well. But on the other hand, it, it did feel a real celebration, and and certainly I felt quite uh, um, emotional at the end of it, thinking of of yeah. you know of, of of the highs and the lows of his life, all sort of all in one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I th- I think I think to an extent there's a there's a certain redressing of the balance that we wanted to do with with Showman. Uh, that I think in Doctor Who documentaries over the years, there's been a tendency, partly because John's not been around to defend himself. You know that there's mm. been a, a sense that if something went wrong on the show, it was John's fault. And mm. occasionally we'd get an opportunity to sing his praises. And I think we did a great show in the Galaxy making of where you could legitimately say John saved the day. And unless John had used his knowledge of the BBC, they wouldn't have been able to continue filming mm. uh, and get it made. You know, but I thought on Showman. I wanted to do something that was more balanced towards John and that 
gave a sense of, you know, it wasn't like they gave the top job on Doctor Who to an idiot, you know, mm. he, he, must have, he must have known what he was doing to get that job and to hold it down and and to make some of my favourite Doctor Who. So so who who was he? And I think I've I've known Richard Marson for about ten years now. We're good friends and and mm. I'd really enjoyed his 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 book. You know, it's a very tough read as the book and obviously there was a lot of uh of kind of unfortunate tabloid interest at, at the time that I know was, yeah. was was hard for Richard as as well. But it's a fascinating book and I can't underestimate the the research that Richard put into that book of tracking yeah. down people from John's childhood and really pinpointing I think that potential that John had as a young man and the thing that really connected to me about the story was the idea of John's life as a really pure awful kind of mythic Greek rise and fall you know mm. that his life is almost like a perfect pyramid shape yeah. that for me kind of leads him directly up to the five doctors and Longleat and then yeah. directly down from, from, from that and it, and it was so unusual I think to see a life that had such a direct shape to it that such mm. a direct tragedy to it so I, that was the thing that I thought if we can compassionately tell a story of a of this rise and fall in a way that is responsible and and sympathetic but realistic at the same time you know then that's what that's what we want to do you know so we I went to Richard and I said you know we we don't want to it's not that we're adapting the book but we'd like to build on the foundations of the book and tell our own story and so Richard came on board very happily, I think, as consultant and and, not, and mm. obviously was a very key interviewee for us. Yeah, and it, and and I think I think in a good way, it's always going to end up as a different beast to the book, you know. But I but you can't underestimate that that legacy that the book has that we could build on, you know. And I think mm. then it was thinking, well, what can I do to make this visual in a way that the book can't, you know. So a lot of the creative on that film was channeled into that sense of you know, that I took cameras to every place in John's life that I yes. could go to, you know, yes. and we kind of drift through John's footsteps all the way through his life, you know, from literally the house that he grew mm. up in, through his school, through the BBC, and through all of the houses that he lived at, all the places that that he, that he knew. And I, and I think by the end of the film, I think one of my favourite moments that our editor Richard Alderson put together is that moment towards the end when John's life has just ended, in, in our narrative and you then revisit in a, in a short montage kind of all of those locations mm. you kind of walk back through and you think well you know the man is gone but the places remain and they're still in our world and and you know I found it very moving to, to do yes. in the last the last 20 minutes of that film is probably the stuff I'm most proud of I think and it's it was uh, and it's been lovely actually to see the reaction to that you know that, mm. that we were able to screen it at the BFI which felt yeah. really special and, and lovely to be able to invite the contributors to it, the interviewees along to be a part of that. And it's mm. been really good to see it go out and, into the world. And I, I did, have, I had, I had somebody, when it was announced, somebody tweeted me and said, are you going to address all of the accusations about John? And I just thought, well, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I think people need to be realistic about what you can, what you can talk about on yeah. a box set that's going to be viewed by different members of the family. Quite. And I think I think the film is mature and responsible about acknowledging that side of John's life and we kind of allude to it and, and touch on that core idea that John basically John's greatest flaw I think was blurring the lines and, and kind of not mm. knowing when to, to put a separation between the professional and the personal and the fact that he, he got too close to fans, they got too close to him you know, was, was, was part of that tragedy of of his life and I think part of the way mm. that the BBC perceived him as not being proper somehow you know not being a proper producer I think that's all connected so we certainly we tried to be to, to be as all-encompassing as we mm. as we possibly could in that film and I think it's the reason I think that film is the reason that the box set is a 12 I think because mm. because it's quite it's quite a grown-up doc I, I hope for that kind of sure for that kind of situation for that kind of box set yeah yeah so I mean I, I, in my own uh, life experience and career. I mean, you know, Amelia miles away from what John Nathan Turner did, but but I I had a, a scenario where I ended up in in a role in the organisation I work for, where you know, like John, it, it was it, you know, I, I kind of knew the the role and how to do it, and it was convenient for everybody, you know, that that I I keep doing that thing because no one else kind of knew what to do, yeah. but equally. Yeah. It's you know year after year doing that same thing. You it, it becomes very difficult. And at some point you get a um, 
a boss who's less sympathetic and thinks, who's this old geezer who's been doing this for however long? You know, we do, do we really need this? Yeah. Do we really want that? And, and you know, and in my career, I was fortunate that you know someone else in the organisation saw my potential and moved me into something else. I got a helping hand, and and John didn't get that. And I think that was you know the, what struck me was that there were many people who could have offered John a helping hand, but but nobody, or or, or, or you know, if they did, he didn't take it. Yeah. I think he was, he was a victim of certainly his own, his own early success, you know, and, and testament to how we can all have too much of a good thing, you know, how, yeah. you know, if John had, John, I think probably had a few opportunities where he may have stayed with the, the less risky option, you know, mm. I, th- I think, I think we talk about this in the film that if he'd gone freelance earlier, you know, then things could have ended up very different, and I think he's a he's a really good parable for how we should all take. A chance every now and again, you know, and, and you can stay too long in mm. the same role, you know. And I think John definitely found that yep. to his detriment after, after that. So it, it was very sad, and I, I think uh, I think that was mm. the thing that I was really interested in, really, just to, to really be able to tell tell that story and, and let the viewer decide what they thought of John off mm. the back of that. 